My text this morning is 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 7. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, so that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. 2 Corinthians 4 verse 7. This treasure. Paul now transitions. The near demonstrative this points us back to verses 4 and 6. The light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, verse 4, and verse 6, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels. Paul has used the word glory or glorious 16 times in chapter 3 and up to our text in chapter 4. He is confronting the false apostles that he calls out by that title in chapter 11 because they are all about glory. He would say, we commend not ourselves again unto you, but give you somewhat to glory on our behalf that you may have somewhat to answer those that glory in appearance and not in heart. Now, every way you can think of glorying in appearance in the context of religion, that's what these men were doing. In their piety, in their looks, in their greatness, in their honor, in their prestige, in their speaking ability. In every way in a, in a religious context that you could glory, that's what they were doing. So Paul says the glory is in the new covenant, not the old covenant, which had glory that was fading and now has faded. It's gone. It's over according to design. So these that glory in appearance, glory in Moses because they were getting the glory of men through an old covenant that God never designed that men would get glory from. So Paul, knowing that they were criticizing him because he's not a very glorious apostle, because Among other things, he's a suffering apostle. What glory is there in a man who's always troubled and suffering? So now he transitions, pointing back to this treasure and telling us how this treasure is put on display. Now the word treasure is where we get our English word thesaurus. It means a thing that is placed in a treasury and also the collected treasure. Thesaurus is a collection of words, synonyms, in a treasury called a book that you can refer to. Now, words are uh, not priceless there. They're not a thing to be treasured, but it's a collection of treasures of words in a book. Well, Paul uses this word to speak both of the treasury and the collection, or the treasure itself. Most of you probably have a place, a treasury, where you keep treasures. Whatever the value is. You may have a home safe or some kind of small vault that protects your treasures, your documents, your jewelry, your insurance policies, whatever you treasure. If no, man else, uh, no other man treasures it, you put it in there to protect it from fire and theft and flood or hurricane or whatever comes. It's a solid box, no matter how big it is, with solid walls that can withstand pressure. Or you use a safe deposit box, or maybe a bank vault. Or if you had 147 million ounces of gold bullion, 
you would put it at Fort Knox, which is said to be just that much gold is there. An impressive, massive vault. We don't even know what's inside it. I looked for pictures and couldn't find anything inside it. It is said to be the most impressive, massive vault on the planet. However thick the walls are, whatever's there, the aim is not only to keep thieves out, but apocalyptic events like a nuclear explosion or fire or flood, it it is to withstand the pressures and the disastrous effects of such events. But when God wants to place an infinitely valuable treasure somewhere, where does He put it? In earthen vessels, clay pots, like Paul and like me and like you. Why does He do that? So that the superiority, the surpassing value of the treasure is not of us, but it is of God. An earthen vessel is a terracotta pot. It is the weakest of all ceramic vessels you can purchase today because it's subjected to very low temperatures, which means it's not very durable. Therefore, you cannot subject it to extreme temperatures. You put it outside in the winter, it's going to crack and chip and break. You can't put it in the microwave. It gets too hot, it breaks, cracks, and chips. Paul's imagery here is that God specifically places the treasure in such pots so that through the cracking, the breaking, the frailty, the weakness, the power is put on display. So three things this morning in this outline. First, how is this power put on display? What does that look like? Secondly, this treasure is what motivates Paul. To keep going. And thirdly, this treasure is preparing Paul and us for a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. How does this treasure do all that? Well, Paul begins by giving us four contrasts beginning in verse 8 to show us what he means by the excellency of the power may be of God, which means it may be seen of God. We know it's of God but it may be manifestly declared and seen through the pot, the clay pot, to be something that is God's and not something that is the strong, great-looking, great-speaking, successful men. Verse 8, We are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. We are persecuted, but not forsaken. We are cast down, which means to strike down, but not destroyed. Always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, so that the life also of Jesus might be what? Manifest, put on display in our bodies. Because we which are alive, we live are always delivered unto death for Jesus' sake, so that the life also of Jesus might be manifest in our mortal flesh. Therefore, or so, that death is at work in us and life in you. So, first of all, Paul uses four words to tell us what this weakness, this frailty, this fragility of the weak Pot is about the temperatures it's subjected to. And so what are they? Trouble, perplexities, persecution, and K. 
cast down. Trouble is just a general word for affliction. It can be affliction of any kind. Now we know specifically about Paul's afflictions. In the 6th chapter, verse 4, he begins to give us a larger list. And then in chapter 11, he begins to give a much larger list of some of the troubles that Paul experienced in ministry. Now this word can be expanded to mean any kind of tribulation, pressure, trouble you may experience. But Paul is specifically aiming at his ministry. He, as a, and an earthen vessel, is being subjected to all kinds of affliction in ministry. He was in prison often, in stripes above measure than those men, contrasting, in labors more, in watchings and fastings. Five times he received 40 stripes except one, minus one. That's 195 stripes on the back, presumably with a cat of nine tails, that ripped his back open. Not all at one time, five different times. Thrice he was beaten or pummeled with rods. He was stoned one time to death, or almost to death. Either God raised him from the dead. He looked dead in Acts 14, but he got up. Why does this man keep going? Would you keep going? You think you've got it hard. You ever been beaten 195 times across the back? You've ever been beaten once with rods? Now, some of you men may have gotten in a fight a long time ago for which you shouldn't have been in, and maybe somebody beat you. But not for the sake of the gospel, I'm going to probably assume you have not been beaten like that. Paul is troubled. Paul is in perplexities. Paul is persecuted or hunted by men. And Paul is struck down. That could be emotionally, but certainly it was physical too. He was struck down with the stones that pummeled his body. Now Paul just captures the truth of that with the phrase, always bearing about the dying of the Lord Jesus. He calls it dying, being delivered to death, and death is at work in us. That's what's happening to the earthen vessel. Now, how would we apply that to us this morning? There are ways, even though Paul right now is speaking about his own ministry. Because they were criticizing him. He's not an apostle. He suffers too much. Paul is now explaining why the suffering is happening in an earthen vessel. So that the power, not their power, but the power of God may be put on display. Now, how would we apply that to us who are not apostles? Jesus makes the connection in John chapter 12. When he was going into Jerusalem six days before the Passover, it's his last trip to Jerusalem. He will never leave again, at least as he was. He left all right, and the tomb was empty. Certain Greeks wanted to see Jesus and told Philip, we would see Jesus. Philip goes and tells Andrew. Philip and Andrew tell Jesus. Jesus answered them. That's John chapter 12. Jesus is going to answer a question they didn't ask because Jesus always knows why people want to see Him. Why would you want to see Him? So Jesus answers, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abides alone. But if it die, it brings forth much fruit. Now Jesus, of course, is first talking about His own death. Death will be at work in Jesus and it will produce life. For a multitude. He's saying he must die. The seed has to go in the ground. There have been occasions in my life where I go out to my shed and clean it out and I find an old pack of seeds that I got from some store. 
and they're still alone. Now, it's got a picture on the front package of nice, juicy tomatoes or, or corn, but there's, there's no life there. There's no fruit. Why? Because it's still alone. But drop it in the ground. And the exoskeleton of the, the shell of the seed perishes. It dies. Why? Fruit may be born. Life comes out of death. How many tomatoes can you get from a tiny seed? A lot. How much redemption, how much salvation is brought out of the life of Christ alone? A lot. You want to see Jesus? We have to talk about death. But Jesus then connects it to His followers. He applies the principle of His own death, bringing life to His followers. He would say, whosoever loves his life shall lose it, and whosoever hates his life in this world shall keep it. There are two deaths we've got to experience. The first one is the death of self. To be a Christian is a demand of God that you die to yourself, will, what you want out of life, and live for the superior will of what God wants out of your life. Because His is far superior than your 80 years of what? Self-denial means that you hate your life in this world, which means this. People are going to look at your life and think, well, that guy just hates his life because he's not doing all the stuff we get to do, right? It'll look like the world that you don't like living because you don't do that and, and you won't go there and you won't participate in that. And they just participate in whatever they want. Right? Because they don't know self-denial. Because they don't know loving their life in another world. See, self-denial is not ultimate. You don't give up everything and gain nothing. See, we hate our life in this world. Why? Because we have a life in Christ and another world to come that is far superior than what this pitiful, pathetic world It's good because God created it. But the pitiful pleasures of this life are nothing compared to the world to come. So don't pity the Christian for self-denial because there's much gain that is the power of self-denial. Now that's the first thing Jesus applies to His own death. He says, you've got to die too to yourself. But then secondly, He says this, if any man serve me, let him follow me. For where I am, my servant shall be also. If any man serve me, him will my father honor. Now, where is Jesus when He speaks those words and answers the Greeks? He is on the pathway to Calvary. And what's on that pathway? Death. Not just physical death. He's going to suffer. They're going to spit in His face. They're going to lay His back open. He's going to be persecuted, troubled, and struck down. So Jesus says, a life of Christianity is not just me dying so that you may live. Certainly it is by the cross. It's you dying with me. It's you dying in me through self-denial and through the suffering. Whatever degree we have to encounter in this world, we are dying also with Jesus. Now why in this earthen vessel does Paul suffer as a minister so that The death is prerequisite for the living or manifesting the life of Christ. Now, what in these contrast of terms, in these four contrasts, do we see 
the life of Christ, which is, in verse 7, the power of God being put on display through the pot, the weak vessel, the cracked pot. See, the light of the glorious gospel, the power of God is put on display, not through strong people, not through great people, but through weak people. Because Jesus says, my strength is perfected in your weakness. And Christ then is put on display. So, the word, the two words we've mentioned before is, but not. Paul is putting on display the life of Christ in death when he does not succumb to trouble, perplexity, persecutions, and being struck down. To succumb means to give way to a power and a force that causes you to do what? Put your eyes on verse 16 if you have your Bible open. For which cause we faint not. The fact that Paul is not fainting in all that suffering gives display to the supremacy of the treasure that's in Paul through the very death that he's experiencing. Remember, the word faint comes from the compound word, which is ex kakeo. Ex out of, the root word for kakeo is evil. Because fainting ultimately comes out of what? An evil heart of unbelief that departs from the living God. If Paul doesn't depart in such suffering, why doesn't he? The treasure. The gospel. So Paul glories in his infirmities. Because when he's weak, the power of Christ is being put on display in his life. How then should we look at weakness? Should we despise it? Should we despise that we are earthen vessels? No, because it's at that point that the life of Christ is made manifest, Paul says. God does not use perfect, beautiful vessels who are so strong and have everything going for themselves. He uses the weak Broken, cracked vessels so that the light that's shining through the cracks, everybody knows it's not because of Him. It's the excellency of the treasure that is within Paul. Now, what would that look like if Paul did succumb, if he did faint? Well, he says we're troubled on every side, but not distressed. The word distress means in dire straits. What does a person do when they're in dire straits? It's like asking the football team to win the game without a quarterback. No, no, not the second string, not the third string. No quarterback, get on the field and win. What do they do? They walk off the field. Why would you go through such a struggle, such suffering of being attacked and people like body torpedoes pounding you when there's no quarterback? We quit. We faint. We've lost heart. We will not continue. Why does Paul not lose heart? We're not distressed because the the superior quarterback is always on the field and he wins the day every time. 
Second, we are perplexed, but we're not in despair. Now, what do people do when they're in despair? Paul uses the same Greek word, apareo, and puts the prefix ex on it, ex out of. So Paul says, we're out of knowledge of what to do here. We're perplexed. We're in doubt. We're, we're not sure where to go. We're, we're out of, as it seems, resources. But we're not X. We're not completely out because God is on our side. He experiences the weight of perplexity. He experiences the full weight of affliction. He's not a stoic apostle. He feels every lash, every pain, every reproach, every hardship. He feels the full weight of it. But he doesn't collapse spiritually. He collapses physically sometimes, the weight of the stones, but spiritually, why? But not in despair. What do people do when they're in despair or they're hopeless? They quit church. They, they quit serving. They quit ministering to people. They quit preaching. They, they quit. Sir, they quit. Yeah. Hopelessness, despair produces a loss of courage. Paul says, we are hunted, we're persecuted, but not. We haven't succumbed because the power of God that sustains the vessel is being put on display and the life of Christ is being known through the persecution. But not what? We are persecuted, but not forsaken. Now, how does a person live if they think God has forsaken them? They've heard it before. I thought serving God would mean that He wouldn't let my wife die and my husband die, but they died. I thought serving God would, would mean that my family was not in complete turmoil upside down, but, but it happened. I thought that serving God meant that my, my spouse wouldn't leave me, but it happened. I feel like I'm forsaken of God. What do you do? I'm not serving Him anymore. See? Why does Paul keep serving? That the excellency of the power that sustained Paul, the gospel treasure, would be manifested. It would be life for the church through Paul's death. That's what he's saying. And then lastly, he says, we are cast down but not destroyed. The word destroyed is... Apoluma is the same word that Paul used in verse 3. For our gospel be hid, it is hid to those that are lost. Lost. What do you do if you're cast down and you succumb to being cast down? You go back to living like lost people for the pleasures of the world. You don't do church, you don't do prayer, you don't do Bible reading, you don't do discipleship. You live like the lost. Like a dog, you go back to your own vomit. And like a pig, you go back to wallowing in the mud because that's what you still love. And it's just not worth it to be struck down, to be afflicted so great, to be perplexed, to be persecuted, all because I'm in the service of God. And I'm trying to serve His people. You see, Paul's point in answer to the false apostles who think suffering is no life for an apostle. And Paul says, I glory in it because through my dying, life comes to the church. Not redemptive life, but the ministry of Paul was giving life. It was giving 
God's word to them. And so the church was the beneficiary of Paul's suffering because the life of Christ is now being put on display. How did Paul also, based on verse 11 have an understanding that, that kept him from, from being uh, overtaken or losing heart or fainting. He would say in verse 11, For we which live are always delivered unto death. Verse 11 is an explanation to verse 10. We're, we're always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, so that the life of Jesus might be put on display, because we're being delivered. Present passive participle verb. Now, in the delivery, you've got three, three possible positions you can be in. You can do the delivering, you can be the package that's delivered, or you can be the recipient of the package. Now, which one is Paul? He's the package. He just gets delivered. Who did the delivering? God did. Who's the recipient? Who's Paul delivered to? Ring the doorbell. Package is here. What opens the door? Affliction? Perplexities? Persecution? And he's struck down. And they welcome him into the house of suffering. All because God delivered Paul to all of his afflictions. Beloved, King Jesus is ruling over every place you're in, every circumstance you have, every heartache, every suffering, every trouble, every affliction, every pain in your body. He is supremely sovereign over every inch of your life. How will that help you? When in this next week you have an unplanned affliction, God is cracking the pot so that more light will be put on display as He sustains you by the treasure of the gospel. Then others look at you and they wonder, why is this guy still a Christian? I don't get it. Because of the treasure of the gospel. So Paul says, so then, here's the conclusion Death is at work in the earthen vessel. Just a cheap, I think you can buy one for about 97 cents today. Just cheap, fragile, weak. Death is at work in us, but life in you. Are you bringing the life of Christ in the relationships you're in? Are you bringing just death? Is the death you experience producing life for others by bringing them the gospel? Or is the death you experience just bringing your death to other people? Oh, that God would grant us to be such vessels to understand why we're delivered to such death. As Paul, we recount in chapter 1, verse 8, we were delivered to so great a death. Why? That we would not trust in ourselves just a clay pot, but in the God which raises the dead, so that the power may be seen to be God in our deliverance and our rescue and in our ministering to one another, God's power is seen through your motherhood, through your fatherhood, through your family and all the struggles that come with it. God's aim, mothers, is that the light of the gospel shine to your children and you, you bring life to them in a way as you keep serving, as you keep ministering, no matter what the day brings because of the superior power of the treasure, of the treasure. Number two, this gospel treasure, we'll call it, is motivating Paul. It's what keeps him going. Verse 13, we having the same spirit of faith, according as it is written, Psalm 116, I believe and therefore have I spoken. We also believe and therefore we keep speaking. That's the 
the, the present tense there speak. We, we just go on speaking. Knowing, participle points to a reason why he keeps speaking, that he which raised up the Lord Jesus shall raise up us also by Jesus and shall present us with you. Verse 15, because all things are for your sakes, that the abundant grace might through the thanksgiving of many redound to the glory of God, for which cause we're not losing heart. Do you see his argument? Now, mothers, what keeps you going in the grueling grind? And yes, we'll call it affliction of motherhood. Fathers, what keeps you going when you're broken and you're chipped and you're cracked? Three things Paul points to here. First, the spirit of faith. He captures what's happening in Psalm 116. The psalmist there is undergoing near-death experiences like Paul did. The psalmist is being delivered to death. And out of that, he says, I believe and therefore I have spoken. Out of faith, the same spirit that Paul has found in Psalm 16 is the disposition of faith in gospel promises. And so the psalmist in 116, he first, he speaks to God. He said, I found sorrow and trouble. Then I called upon the name of the Lord for deliverance. And God came. Then he spoke to the others that read the psalm, or in his day, gracious is the Lord and righteous, yea, our God is merciful. He's speaking to others. How? By faith. And then he speaks to his own soul by faith and confidence in God. Return unto thy rest, O my soul, for the Lord hath dealt bountifully with thee. I believe, therefore, I have spoken. Now, how simple is that? You know, sometimes we try to dissect faith and we we look at all these angles. and, And there's more to faith than just believing facts. But here, it's just very simple. We believe what God promises, therefore we keep going and we keep ministering and we keep serving and we keep speaking to one another. Lose faith in the promises and our mouths are shut. Not going to say anything more. Not going to disciple. Not going to attend. Not going to serve. Not going to help. Not going to minister. So Paul is motivated by gospel promises. Beloved, whatever God has said to you in a promise, you can bank on. Who can you rest on like that? Can you rest on what the government says to you? Can you rest infallibly on what your parents say to you as something that will infallibly happen? No. They can't make everything good that they say. They want to and try. Can you rest on friends? Can you rest on anybody that what they say will infallibly happen? So when you open the treasure chest of God's Word and just read a promise, you just close the book and say, I can, I can bring the life, my whole life and family and church will just rest on that promise and know without a doubt God is going to fulfill it. Do you have that same spirit of faith that the psalmist does <clears throat> and that Paul had? <clears throat> if we don't, what happens? We faint. For which cause we faint not? We faint. Paul believed God promised eternal life. He believed it. God promised help. He believed it. God promised deliverance. He believed it. God promised strength. He believed it. God promised grace. He believed it. God promised never to forsake him. He believed it. God promised to be with him. He believed it. And therefore, he kept speaking and moving and ministering in the affliction and the trouble and the perplexities and the persecution and being struck down because he believed, therefore he spoke. 
If we believe, we speak. If we don't believe, let us shut our mouths. Right? We've got people all over our planet. that They're speaking, and they don't know what they believe, and what they believe is not going to happen. How much more should the church of the living God minister and speak out of the reality of gospel promises? We have this treasure in earthen vessels. So what do we do? We speak. But then there's hope. Knowing that. So faith is being fueled by hope. If faith doesn't have hope to sustain it, he just walks off the field. I've had it. I got nothing to look forward to. It's just suffering, suffering, trouble, perplexity, struck down again and again. For what? Nothing. I'm not putting up with that anymore. I'm quitting marriage. I'm quitting family. And you better believe I'm quitting church. How does Paul keep going? Knowing that He which raised up the Lord Jesus shall raise up us also by Jesus and shall present us with you. Gospel treasure in earthen vessels produces gospel hope, which means what? We don't lose heart. Beloved, where is your hope today? Paul would say in the first letter, chapter 15, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable to be pitied. I mean, the world should pity us if our hope is in this life only. What that means is we're, we're putting all our eggs in the basket of this life and expecting that basket of eggs to deliver to us what we want, really, in life of fulfillment and joy and pleasure and happiness. If we do that, we are headed for some big despair. That's why people quit marriages, they quit family, they quit churches, they quit life, they quit God for false expectations or putting their expectations in something that can never do what you're expecting it to do. So either we're expecting the world to deliver on our paradise, which then eventually will lead us to despair, do you see how many people are living in despair in our world? And you have gospel hope and light to shine through your suffering, through your perplexities, through your trouble, through being cast down. Every time you see in the Bible that God is going to divinely present us to Christ or Himself, the aim is always joy. Ephesians 5, husband loves your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it, that he may sanctify it and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he may present it to himself, a glorious church, not having any spot or wrinkle or any such thing. He's going to divinely present you to his own glory so that you can see him as he is. Colossians 1, Paul would say, You who were sometimes alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled to the body of his flesh through death, that he might present us holy, unblameable, and without blemish in his, in his sight. The aim of redemption, the aim of reconciliation, is a divine presentation in, to the face of God. And then Jude 24 just puts it succinctly. Now to Him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of His glory with exceeding joy. What's the upshot of this divine presentation that Paul is looking for? 
exceeding, overwhelming, over-the-top joy. Knowing this, what does Paul do? He just keeps going. Without hope, you cannot keep going. Or your going will be just a shell. You'll just be a shell of a Christian. You just come hear a sermon, you're gone. Because your hope is somewhere else. You're not going to disciple. You're not going to read the Bible. You're not going to be praying because that's not where your hope is. Your hope is not in the gospel. It's out there. And if it is, we're just going through the motions. Because faith is not being fueled by future glory that is banking everything that we are on the reality that God said, I'm going to raise you up and I'm going to present you to myself. And there are going to be joy and pleasures at my right hand forevermore. We must have hope. That's what gives us endurance. Paul said in Colossians 1, strengthened with all might according to His glorious power. For patience and long-suffering with joyfulness. What is strength? Patience and long-suffering. It means to stay, to remain, to abide, and not to retaliate. That's strength. Weak people retaliate. Weak people are loud and boisterous. Weak people are angry people. They're so weak. How easy is it to just by default retaliate? That's so simple. Anybody can do that from a little child to an old person. It's just not hard. That's weakness. But when you're strengthened by the Spirit according to His glorious power, which is gospel treasure power, hoping for the joyfulness that's coming your way, what do you do? You're patient and you're long-suffering. And it looks weak, doesn't it? I mean, didn't Jesus look really weak when they nailed Him to the cross? You know, just come down. What are you doing? How weak. He was crucified in weakness, Paul said, but he lives by the power of God. This vessel, clay pot, looks so weak. Remember Paul said, in weakness, he is then strong. When people try to be strong because they retaliate, they're weak. So don't be fooled. They're just camouflaging their weakness in loudness. And retaliation. The earthen vessel doesn't have the power to refrain from retaliation, but gospel power and hope of the joy set before you to be strengthened like that produces endurance and long suffering. So the joyfulness of Colossians 1 keeps Paul strengthened so that it, it yields in his life. Endurance, he keeps going, and long-suffering. He, he's just not retaliating. Why? Because my hope is, well, God's going to retaliate because He said He is. He's going to pay it back. And He's going to bring me into the joyfulness forever. So why do I need to do that? That's, that's God's prerogative and God's job. I just keep serving, keep going by the strength of the power of my hope in the gospel. Paul would say in Romans 12, 12, rejoicing in hope produces what? Patience in tribulation. What happens if you don't have any joy in your hope or your hope is misplaced? You don't endure tribulation. You walk off the field, you quit, 
You go to the locker room, you change your clothes, you don't stay with it. Why? It's not worth it. Rejoicing in hope, patient tribulation, continuing incident in prayer. Be devoted to prayer. Why? Because God is the source of the joy. We ask Him for it. And, and the gospel promises sustain our hope. So we're asking God. We're asking Him, Lord, be my joy. Show me the promises. Stir me with your strength. Show me the glory of the gospel in the Word. So if we're going to believe, we come to the Word. If we're going to hope, we have to go to the promises. Because what, whatever was written for time was written for our learning and admonition so that through comfort and patience of the Scriptures, we have hope. Scripture gives us hope that fuels our faith in the gospel promises, both those that God fulfills now and ultimately in the future. So that Paul says what? Well, this is why clay pots are not fainting. Because of the treasure. It's all about the treasure. And then finally, number three, and lastly, the gospel treasure is preparing Paul and it's preparing us. Verse, well, let me get verse 15 first. He would say, For all things are for your sakes, that the abundant grace might through the thanksgiving of many redound to the glory of God. And that's to tie into why Paul keeps going. It's for the glory of God, right? It's not for his own glory, like the false apostles in chapter 11. It's, it's for the glory of God. So all things would include all of his suffering is for the sake of the church. So that as, as abundant grace, overflowing, spreading grace, might through thanksgiving of many redound to the glory of God. Paul is an instrument of grace. And he delights to be such an instrument. Now remember, he's an earthen vessel instrument, which means he gets cracked, he gets delivered, he gets subjected to reproaches and afflictions for the sake of the church. And all those afflictions is God working through Paul to bring grace to the church. Now, what kind of grace did Paul bring to the church? Should we say that? He delivered the inspired word. Is that grace? When you read this letter, do you know Paul is an instrument of God's grace? His pen is an instrument. Oh, beloved, are we bringing the life of Christ? Are we bringing God's grace? Are we ministers of God's grace? Ephesians 4.21. That we may minister grace to the hearers. Do you want to be? I can't say I'm always that. I can't say I, I do that very well. I can't say that I'm never an instrument of death or an instrument of own rage or anger or complaining or murmuring. But when we see it like Paul does, that this treasure is in weak vessels as designed by God, as a, that God even has brought together in churches, not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God has chosen the weak things to confound mighty people like these mighty apostles that were false. Then we can be instruments of grace rather than instruments of complaint and murmuring, and wrath, and anger, and retaliation, and all that we think is wrong and is affecting us. That's no way for us to live, is it? It's all for the glory of God. And God is glorified through thanksgiving. 
So Paul's not after people thanking him. He wants all the glory and thanksgiving to go to God because God is the source of grace. He's the source of mercy. He's the source of help. He's the source of strength. Whatever the instrument it comes, whatever the version of the clay pot that's cracking brings that grace, God is source and God is magnified when we thank God as the only source of our help and strength. No matter who He uses, me, you, or anyone else, God gets the glory. Now... How does this treasure prepare us? Verse 16. For which cause, which points back to the last three verses, and then points forward to this. But though our outward man perish, yet the inward man is renewed day by day. The word for perish, I think, is the only time it's used here, if not very few. So it doesn't mean the perishing of the soul. It means the physical body is decaying. It's losing vigor and strength. You know, after 195 lashes, you think Paul just hopped up like he did when he didn't have those lashes and the scars? You think after being stoned, your joints may ache? There's no knee replacement. There's there's no bone replacement surgery. There's no joint juice that he can take and maybe feel a little better. Nothing. There's no kind of surgery to, to correct anything that we know of. Paul's joints probably aching, not as sure-footed as he once was. Maybe his eyes are growing dim with age as they all do, and no glasses, no contacts that I'm aware of. Maybe they had some way of helping vision, but not like we do today. We can just go down to the doctor and get a little help and get a little strength and keep going. He's decaying. The earthen vessel is being pummeled, beaten, afflicted, and it's it's cracking, it's decaying. But though that's happening on the outside, on the inside, what cannot be seen is Paul is increasing in vigor and strength. Every person here is going to decay and wear out. You're going to crack physically. It's that day you look back at a picture of your youth and you think, who who on earth is that? I don't don't even recognize that person. And you look in the mirror and you go, wow. That's cracking for sure. And that's wrinkling and that's all the things that come with it. Now Paul's going to give two things here. A why and a how related to the renewing. Why? Renewal. How? Renewal. Verse 17. Why? Because our light affliction which embraces everything he's experiencing in verses 8 and 9. Our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us, prepares us, means to render us fit for a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. The affliction that's pummeling the outer body, that's decaying it. Now Paul means here more than just The decay of dying that happens when you get old, that's part of it. It happens to him. But a lot of his decay was largely because of the affliction. The light affliction, which is pummeling the body and causing the outer man to decay, in part, is being countered by renewal. That's because the affliction is serving the purpose of God to render Paul fit for a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Now, how does that work? Well, think of a king who is glorious and magnificent beyond all comprehension. And he sent out his son to 
conquer and capture rebel lands and rebel people, and his son died in the process. And because of his son's work and success in subduing the lands, he sends out heralds with a treasure of news and saying, because of my son's work, I'm calling on all of you to lay down your arms of rebellion and turn from it and receive my gracious offer to sit in my house and be part of my kingdom and banquet with me forever. And I will provide for you a suit of clothing that's so stupendous and beautiful, sparkling, that upon your reception of it, it's yours forever, and no one will take it from you. You receive it by faith. You lay down your rebellion, and now you follow the king, and we know his son was raised from the dead. Now here's the problem. You've already been rendered fit. You already have the clothing. You've already been declared right by the suit of clothing. The problem is your imperfect body cannot fit into the new suit of clothing. You've got all these imperfections. Now it may be that it's too tight or too small. I'll let you work through that. But the point is now you've got to be subjected to a grueling affliction kind of regiment and exercise all your life to equip you to fit into the clothing that's already yours. Now the equipping does not declare you right. That's been done. The clothes is yours. It's it's yours forever. You're going to sit at the banqueting table. But the affliction and the grueling work is equipping you. It's preparing you for that suit of clothing that you'll wear forever. You have it by declaration of God, but now He's filling you out for it. I think that's what Paul is saying here. Affliction is preparing us for a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. How is it that he's comparing affliction to glory, or what is he comparing glory with? If it's far more exceeding, than what? Paul says this in Romans 8.18, where he says, For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. Now my question is, whoever compares suffering with any kind of glory? That makes no sense. It's like comparing two vacation spots. The Sahara Desert or the Bahamas. I never even thought about comparing those two. Why would you compare suffering with glory? But notice Paul says the suffering of this present time. Suffering means misfortune and calamity. When you experience calamity, you know what you experience? Great loss. The losses that you will incur in suffering in this present time. The loss of job as a Christian the loss of wealth, the loss of health. How much did Paul lose? The loss of loved ones. Suffering means losing things that are of gain. So what's Paul saying? I reckon that the sufferings of your present time losses have no comparison, whatever their value, to the glory that shall be revealed in you. That's the comparison. So the far more exceeding weight of glory is not to be compared to what the affliction is taking from Paul. And it's taking a lot, is it not? Every time he's afflicted, life is taken. He's dying. His health is taken. His reputation. He's reproached. But there's no comparison. So the affliction, beloved, is serving God's purpose of 
fitting us, equipping us, preparing us for glory. How? While we look. Verse 18. The affliction causes us to look toward heaven where our treasure lies. Gospel hope and affliction because of the gospel then turns our eyes towards Jesus in heaven. And the affliction then is causing us to look. For what? For we know that if the earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, we have a house in heaven, an eternal house, not made with hands, made of God. We are looking now to something we were maybe not looking at precisely because the affliction served the purpose of preparing us for a glory that is joy unspeakable and full of glory, Peter would say. Are you looking? And here he answers the question. Somebody said, I just can't see how affliction brings about any kind of good. Well, Paul says, why we look not at the things which you can see. Somebody says, I don't see. Well, that's the point. You can't see it. The outward man, just, you just see decay. There's no good you see there. It's just all falling apart. But inwardly, the good is we're looking and anticipating and we're turning to Christ. And when Paul says in 3.18 to the last chapter that we're being transformed into the same image, now he tells us how that look transforms. It's when afflictions pummel the body, the inward man is renewed by looking to Christ and that look of future glory begins to transform us into the image that we're longing for and looking at, Christ. So, your suffering is not meaningless, is it? It has purpose. So don't look at what is temporal, the outward man, the afflictions. It's temporary. It's what you see. The inward man looks at eternal weight of glory and looks at what he can't see, which is eternal. That's a comparison Paul was making. See, as this body continues to decay and fall apart. Inwardly, God's design is that we're invigorated, we're strengthened. And through that strength, what happens? The gospel treasure through earthen vessels is put on display through our dying. The gospel treasure sustains us in faith and hope as we keep speaking for the glory of God. The gospel treasure through affliction causes us to look at the gospel end, the glory of God, and we're waiting for the, the tabernacle, the house of God in the heavens. I close with a song that expresses this. Don't drop a single anchor, we're almost home. Through every toil and danger, we're almost home. How many pilgrim saints have before us gone? No stopping now, we're almost home. That promised land is calling, we're almost home. And not a tear shall fall then. We're almost home. Make ready now your souls for that kingdom come. No turning back. We're almost home. This journey ours together. We're almost home. Unto that great forever. We're almost home. What song anew we'll sing round that happy throne. Come faint of heart. We're almost home. This life is just a vapor. We're almost home. That sun is setting yonder. We're almost home. Take courage, for this darkness shall break to dawn. Oh, lift your eyes. We're almost home. Almost home. We're almost home. 
So press on toward that blessed shore. Oh, praise the Lord. We're almost home. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your glorious grace, the treasure of the gospel that you have placed in earthen vessels like Paul, not polished, not glorious, not wise and strong, not noble, but weak. Lord, let us not despise our weakness, but know that it's through our weakness your strength is made known and the life of Christ is put on display as we seek to minister to each other, speak and serve each other, and to know that where Jesus is, we as His servants are there on the pathway of Calvary, self-denial, and the pathway of trials and troubles. Lord, help us to speak out of faith and to rest in hope at future glory that's to come at the resurrection. And Lord, may we do all this because we want You to be glorified through our weakness. We want You to be magnified through our giving thanks and resting and relying upon You alone. And Lord, help us to be renewed day by day and with each passing moment. As our bodies begin to tremble and we lose our stability and our eyesight and our strength, Lord, may the inward man be renewed and strengthened in such a way that whatever afflictions come our way, that it prepares for us far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory while we look. Help us to look, Lord. Make what we've heard today in the form of prayer. Deliver to us, answer this prayer, and make this a reality so that we faint not. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.